Tom Fitzgerald is a cowboy. I mean, he grew up on a ranch, riding horses, chasing down cattle like ranchers do. That was back in the 50s. The ranch was somewhat remote. They had sporadic electricity that came from a generator. They irrigated crops from a creek. Life was simple. And when he's around 15 years old, he read a Reader's Digest story about the mysterious Oak Island in Nova Scotia. That story really stuck in Tom's mind. Now, in case you don't know about Oak Island, as I mentioned, it's in Nova Scotia. That's in Canada. It's been shrouded in mystery since I think the 1700s when there was supposedly some treasure buried there. There's a lot of compelling reasons, many compelling reasons for people to believe that the treasure is actually there. And ever since then, people have tried to dig it up unsuccessfully. There's all kinds of environmental problems and other things that make digging impossible. There's a lot to the story. It's captured a lot of people's imagination if not their lust for treasure. Anyway, time passed. A lot of time passed. Tom, no longer a boy, was approaching his 80th birthday. He still had not seen Oak Island, and he had still not forgotten about that story he read back when he was 15 years old. So he hatched a plan. He planned to ride 10,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers at 80 years old to finally get to see Oak Island. Now I'm going to bring in someone else here because... A few years before this, Tom had met a fellow named Patrick Farrell, who was also a motorcyclist. Pat liked to ride his custom motorcycle around town, mainly, on very short rides. And as far as he knew, that's all there was to riding motorcycles. But as Pat got to know Tom a little better and was exposed to his riding style, his idea of riding changed completely, beginning with an 8,000-mile or 13,000-kilometer trip, and then on to this 10,000-mile trip to Sea Oak Island. And everything changed from there. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Sam Manikin, Jocelyn Snow, Charlie Borman, Simon Thomas, Lisa Jarvis, Jimmy Lewis, Elspeth Baird, John Thomas, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets a thousand miles or sixteen hundred kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets motobreeze.com and green chili adventure gear offers american-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles you can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system and of course green chili adventure gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it tough reliable gear greenchiliadv.com best rest product is the maker of the cycle pump the best tire inflator for motorcyclists it'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes made in the usa comes with a lifetime warranty they also distribute google tech filters cyclepump.com uh my name is patrick farrell I live in Mitchell, Oregon, and um, I, I help operate a hostel with my wife, um, and I'm a bus driver at the school and a maintenance guy at the school and also help pastor a church. Uh, 
My name is, is Tom Fitzgerald. I live in Twickenham, which is about 20 miles north of Mitchell, and I'm retired. Tom Patrick, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Yeah, good to be here. Yes, happy to do it. <laughs> so you guys just completed a trip. I know you, you were out on a, on a trip not too long ago. You're, you're back now. You're motorcycle riders. So I'm going to start with Pat because Pat, you're the you're the one that contacted us originally. Pat, what what is motorcycling for you? Um, well, until I met Tom, motorcycling was more just about motorcycles, not about motorcycling. <laughs> um, before coming to Mitchell, I was a commercial photographer at an ad agency, and I'd started to photograph motorcycles for a website called Bike Exif. And I just love, I love the look of motorcycles. I love the, the simple mechanical look of them. I have one uh, motorcycle that I sort of chopped up and is at a local brew pub here in town. Looks kind of like a board tracker, you know, and I just, I love the look of motorcycles. And I, so, and with our kids, I would work on motorcycles. We'd buy cheap dirt bikes and fix them up and ride them around and just had a good time. Um, but then Tom came along and said, Hey, I want to do this this big trip, this 8,500 mile trip that we did in uh, 2020. And suddenly the, my understanding of motorcycling, just my world completely opened up. Suddenly I just wanted to spend every minute on two wheels. And uh, so that's, I guess that's the evolution of motorcycling for me. That So and, it uh, turned you into a rider as opposed to just an appreciator of, of the motorcycle. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, Tom definitely yeah. took me from guy who likes to look at motorcycles and photograph them to guy who would rather spend all of his time on one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> now, Tom, I guess you started out on the back of a horse. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah, I started horseback when I was probably five years old, something like that. And I spent a lot of time horseback until I graduated high school. Then I I moved away from the ranch and, and got into doing other things. I, I went to trade school for a couple of years. I, I did some uh, work on uh, a couple of the moonshots and some other electronic things like a low-light level TV system for the A1E aircraft, a guidance package for the F-111, things like that. And then I... I did some other things, and then finally I wound up coming back and spending most of the rest of my life as a buckaroo on the ranch. Okay, so let's go back to that the early days at the ranch as a kid. Can you talk about what that was like? Well, it was uh, it was busy. Uh, we had a lot of work to do. Uh, all the kids had to work as well as as the parents, and just to try to make ends meet, but. Also, when our chores were done, when we were little kids, we were we were turned loose. We were absolutely free. Just tell one parent which way you were going and when you expected to be back, and and then you were just turned loose like a wild animal. <laughs> what was well, that's changed, Sean. <laughs> what was living on the ranch like? Hydro, water, those sorts of things. Oh, 
<laughs> well, we live in a really dry area, and so water was was very important. Uh, we irrigated out of a small creek when we could, and usually that was just for through the month of June and into maybe the first week of July, and then it was there was not enough water left in the creek to irrigate with, so that put a stop to that. But we we put up. <laughs> enough hay to feed our cows and this is in the early days uh my father would would mow with a, a team of horses and a horse drawn mower and i used to rake with a team of horses we had uh we had a well that was probably only about 20 25 feet deep hand dug well but uh we had a a light plant with a, a 32 volt electrical system and it ran the pump and, and occasionally we could have lights. You, you mean some sort of generator? Is that what you had? Yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a, a Delco generator. It was gasoline powered. It was probably about, I would say, uh, maybe an eight horsepower engine that, that turned a generator and would charge up a bank of batteries that were about, uh, seven by seven inches and about 14 inches tall. They were glass with plates inside. You mentioned then you did some trade schools. What, what got you interested in that and where were you going? Well, I, I started out at Hill College in Sacramento and then I ended up at Blue Mountain Community College in uh, Pendleton, Oregon. I was studying electronics, electronic engineering and I, I pursued that for a while, but I, uh, I couldn't get along with the union. And, and so I, I wound up coming back and, and doing most of the rest of my life, manual labor. So what did you do when you're working on electronics? Uh, I worked, uh, in a research and development lab in uh, a place in California and uh, we worked on some of the two of the moonshots, uh, Apollo 8 and LEM-10. And then uh, I worked on uh, a low-light level TV system for the A1E. That was my primary project. I spent probably a year and a half developing that from uh, two or three four-by-four-foot boards that were, had wires and things going every direction to putting it onto half a dozen uh, little cards that you could put into a, a small box about five by seven by 10. It was really exciting work. And, and when the moonshots were flying, it was really, really exciting. And then uh, it was also stressful because you've got three guys that are out there a quarter million miles away from home and our equipment's got to get him back. You know, uh, that's, oh. That puts a little stress on you. So when you when you decided to leave that and get back to the farm, what's it like when you arrive on the farm? I mean, I can't help but think you're coming in with all this new thought process and, and technology ideas in your head and you walk back into the farm, which is kind of, you know, the old way. Well, I, I just kind of turned my back on the electronic world and got back into what I had known all my life. And it, it felt comfortable and familiar, and, and I, I enjoyed it. And what was that? What are you doing at the farm? 
Well, I spent a lot of time horseback. Uh, at one time, I was horseback almost every day, seven days a week, for 14 hours a day uh, for three years. Wow. That's a lot of riding. That's a lot of riding. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you doing with the horse, though? Uh, moving cattle and gathering cattle and that sort of thing. So you're a cowboy? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. I mean, a real cowboy, not like the cliched cowboy that we talk about yeah, many times. We, I make a distinction between a buckaroo, which stays on the ranch and does does real work all day, every day, and the, the cowboy that goes to town on weekends and gets drunk and raises hell and and that sort of thing. Right. Where did you go to get drunk on the weekends then? I didn't. <laughs> that was a trick question. That's okay. So, <laughs> so, so a, a, you're a real cowboy, you know, working on the ranch. How do you come across a motorcycle? Well, uh, when I was quite young, like eight or so, uh, my cousin that I was very fond of married a, a national class racing motorcyclist. And he took me for a ride one time out on some cow trails around the ranch. And he was so confident that I felt perfectly safe and comfortable. And he rode in some places that I would never dare to go today. But it just felt fine to me. I, and I thought, you know, I would like to do this someday. And so when I was uh, about 19, I bought my first motorcycle and, and I've been with it ever since. It's interesting how that one ride can make a difference for somebody's life. That's how you get riders into motorcycling. Yeah. I took my one of my nephews for a ride when he was probably four. And I, I had a, a T100 Triumph then. And I just tootled around up, up a little gentle hillside and we were probably never going more than 15 miles an hour, but he said that he can still remember that. And he decided right then that he was going to be a motorcyclist and he is. That's really cool. <laughs> and you said you've been riding he, ever since you bought your, your bike when you're about 19 years old. So you went through a whole bunch of different bikes. Yeah, I went to, uh, a 1950 Triumph third Thunderbird, uh, a 58, uh, T100A, 61TR6. Uh, I can't remember what the year's models were on the BMW, but there's an R50, an R60, and an R69S, and then a, a Honda CM400, and then a GL500, and then a Triumph of Bonneville America, and now I'm running a, a, a CSC250. And don't forget the Chang. The Chang's in. Oh, yeah, I had a Chang. For a while, I also had an AJS and a, and a, a Jawa three fifty that I raced. What would you do with all the old bikes? Are you one of these guys who has them all still in the farm somewhere? No, I when I'm done with one, I get rid of it. Oh, so, you're, <laughs> so you're you've been riding your whole life. What did you do with your bikes then? Like throughout this time, was it just mainly you know transportation here and there and, and some small trips, or did you get into bigger trips? Well, I've. I've done a number of trips. Uh, my wife and I did three trips to uh, places like uh, Tennessee, uh, Missouri, uh, Texas, that sort of thing. 
But uh, one of the things that I that I really enjoy about it is I just I write for relaxation. When I get out on the road, it seems like all my worries just kind of blow away in the wind. When did you meet Pat? Oh, when was that? I think it was 2016 when we opened the hospital. About 2016, he says. Uh, I designed a race course for a local uh, Labor Day weekend festival here in in Mitchell. And uh, I was race director for some 22 years. And this is a a foot race. Yeah, it's a foot race. (laughs) It's a half marathon foot race. And I was kind of wanting to get out of it, and so I... I kind of drafted Patrick to take over on that. (laughs) It's true. It's true. And and at at this time when you guys met, were you into motorcycles or or like photographing motorcycles and and that? Yeah. So I had just, I had just left uh, my ad agency job when my wife and I opened the hostel and the church in Mitchell. And, uh, and so I was, I don't know, I wasn't really a, wasn't really a motorcyclist. Like, I guess you say, like you say, I was a, an appreciator of motorcycles. Well, you rode your board tracker around right. town. <laughs> so yeah, I have a, I have a mid seventies, uh, CB one twenty five that, that looks very board tracky. And I, I chopped the frame and I just got a tractor seat on it and, you know, low bars and, and, uh, uh, <laughs> The headlight, in order to turn the headlight on, I wired it to some big quarter inch uh, headphone jacks. And so you got to plug it in to turn the headlight on and you got to plug in the second one to turn on the high beam. And <laughs> so, it's kind of unique, right? right? But, you know, I never, I never really went far with it. I just ride it on some of the back roads around here. And, and, um, I, th- I think what really happened is Tom called my bluff is what happened. He called my bluff and, you know, I realized that all my dreams of going out and riding motorcycles were going to be completely impossible with anything that I had in my garage. What do you mean he called your bluff? Well, I think, you know, I had this, uh, this in my mind, I had this persona that I was a motorcyclist. (laughs) 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 And then I met Tom and it's like, you know, I just thought, you know, he's worn out more, more motorcycles than most of us will ever own. And that's really a motorcyclist, you know, when he told me about his trips that he's taken and, and all of these things, you know, riding, I don't know, what was that? Your longest trip was what? Oh, I think the longest trip I'd taken before was probably around 9,000 miles. But I mean that one day. Oh, in one day, uh, I rode two up on a, on an R sixty nine S for eleven hundred miles in one day, twenty hours, eleven hundred miles. So, yeah, and then and then he told me about a time when he was commuting back and forth to work, you know, and just in the snow and having to go over a mountain pass to get to work and back, and you know, and we rode over that mountain pass together one time, and he showed me where it started and where it ended, and I never ever <laughs> would have done that, you know, and it was just a, you know, just back up, take another run at it, make it about, I don't know, 30, 40 yards back up. Oh yeah. Know. Yeah. That was, that was a really awful trip. Uh, uh, people had warned me that there was snow up there and, and I had seen nothing but just a few wet spots on the pavement and the rest of it was dry and the sun was shining. I thought, well, that that's hogwash. And I got up there and, and it went from dry pavement to 14 inches deep in about a hundred yards. <laughs> 
It's so, incredible what elevation does, isn't it? <laughs> it is, well, yeah. so so when I say that Tom called my bluff, you know, this is the like I'd always been around motorcycle builders or people who rode cruisers on the weekends. My dad was a Harley guy when he was young, um, you know, and I'd never never really taken tackled a really big trip before, and I I didn't even know how, and I didn't really have the road riding skills yet. I didn't even have my endorsement, which, you know, that's our, our motorcycle license down here in Oregon. And so when it came time to go, we had to get a bike. We found one up in Washington outside of Seattle. And it, I mean, this is pathetic, but I, like I couldn't even test drive to test ride it because I wasn't confident enough with that big of a bike. So Tom had to test ride it for me. <laughs> We loaded it in the back of the truck and made it home through really adverse weather. We joke that uh, when we brought it back, it was so windy and rainy. And on on a, on our trips, we've had uh, really heavy winds. And so we joke it's the BMW's fault because it's just like it was born in the wind and it stayed in the crosswind. But, but anyway, yeah, we just – Tom uh, exposed me to what could happen which is well beyond what I knew was even reasonable. And now I've done, you know, an 8,500 mile trip and a 10,000 mile trip. And um, probably much to my wife's chagrin. And, you know, we got back from that 10,000 mile trip and I was ready to get on the bike and go again. <laughs> but Pat, when you're talking about going over the mountain and you're talking about the, the snow and things that Tom went through, is it really that you weren't as adventurous as Tom or maybe more sensible? I'm just going to leave that. No. Yeah, Tom and I may have had that discussion a time or two about <laughs> what's sensible and what's, what's not. Exactly. <laughs> Tom, when you were riding all, all these years, was, was it for joy or, or was it your only transportation? Or what, how, like how often did you ride and what was it, what was it all about? Well, for about five years, it was my only transportation, but uh, it's also uh, after, even after I got a car, I just, the freedom and the being able to sense the environment that you're going through is just so precious to me that I, I intend to ride as long as I'm able to keep the thing on, the, on its wheels. How does riding when you're young... Well, on the ranch, even when you're an adult riding the horses for work and riding a motorcycle correlate or do they? Uh, they do in a way. Uh, there's the, the same sense of, of freedom and you're out, you're out, you're, you're in the environment instead of just going through it. Mm. You're out there. You can, you can see the sights clearly. You don't have to look through glass you can smell the smells. You can feel subtle changes in temperature. You can feel the wind. All those things just makes it's more. It's this is what I consider to be reality. And when you're in a car or something like that, you're just you're just passing through the environment. You're not actually in it. Now, Pat was mentioning you called his bluff describing this trip. Now, this is back in 2020. This is a, a plan to do an, uh, an 8,500 mile trip. Can, can you set that up, Tom? Uh, what's that all about? Well, I was thinking about the, doing this trip and, and some people 
had told me, uh, you know, you may be, you might be too old to take a trip like that. And then some people said, there's no way you can ride a 250 that far. And I thought, I'll be the judge of that. And how old are you at that point? Well, I was 78 then. 78. Okay. And you said you'll be the judge of that. <laughs> yeah. And we were just here. I was here with Patrick one day and, and I just kind of jokingly said, you ought to get you a street bike and go with me. <laughs> and, and, and that's how it started. Just like that. Well, and it was funny because he, Tom, Tom brings this up. So Tom plays guitar at church that we, that we pastor. And Tom's also a pastor himself. He does a cowboy church every, uh, every month. And, and so, you know, we're at church and he says, Hey, I got this idea. I'm like, Oh, that sounds like a great idea. You know, just in <laughs> kind of in passing. And again, he calls my bluff, like probably a month later, uh, he goes, can we talk after church? I'm like, Oh yeah, sure. We'll talk after church. And he says, good. Get your calendar. <laughs> I, that's when I went, Oh, he's serious. <laughs> but Tom, what's the point of the trip? Why did you want to go on this 8,500 mile trip at 78 years old? Well, I wanted to see my son in North Carolina and, and I just wanted to go on a trip. I just wanted to take a long bike ride. Adventure. It had been a while since I'd done that. So, you know, um, my wife had been sick for some time, well, most of her life, and but the last two or three years had been really bad, and and I hadn't been able to ride at all, hardly, and so I really wanted to take a long ride, and and I, I just wanted to see my son back there and thought, well, time to saddle up and go. <laughs> what happened with your wife? Uh, she was born with a defective heart, and... Uh, she finally passed away in, in uh, 2018. Oh, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. It was after that that you decided you wanted to go on this trip. And that, that's what you're saying. You know, you hadn't been able to ride for a while, I guess, when, when she was um, uh, approaching uh, the, the final years of her life, or the final time of her life. So the last three years, you didn't get to ride. Then afterwards, you're looking to go on this adventure, 78 years old. You uh, approach Patrick or, or somehow corral him. There's a good word for this, <laughs> yeah. this conversation in, into the idea of the I trip. I felt a little roped, a little roped. <laughs> okay, but roped yeah, that's probably yeah. better. Yeah, I like yeah. that. Yeah, kind of roped him in. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, Pat, do you just immediately accept this? I mean, don't you have to go home and talk with your wife and, and work out all the details? That- well, so, you know, she's there during the initial conversation and we go home after that, after that first conversation that I thought it, Tom was just sort of bringing it up in jest and, and we're having a conversation at home and she says, my wife, uh, Jalay, she says, you know, I think, uh, I think Tom's pretty serious about this and you need to be, uh, you need to be careful about this. Cause if you can't do it, you need to let him know because she recognized right away how serious he was. And I just thought it was a couple of guys, you know, just kind of joking around. Talk about what if. Yeah. And so then suddenly, you know, I just was, I was, uh, the gravity of it became apparent after Jalea and I had a few conversations and she encouraged me really to take the trip because, you know, she could see how important it was to Tom. And she, you know, she's always known that I loved motorcycles and never really, uh, explored motorcycling to that degree. 
so she was very supportive and, you know, God bless her because, um, you know, she, she helped Tom open a can of worms in me, but, (laughs) but, um, and then when Tom said, Hey, let's, let's actually plan this out. Um, you know, my wife was very supportive of it. Yeah. She's a real princess in my opinion. (laughs) She's a saint. How do you go from, um, working at an ad agency and what did you do there to the hostel? Oh my, that's a story. (laughs) Uh, so I was, uh, I was a commercial photographer for an ad agency in Eugene, Oregon. And, um, uh, I've always been in photography. I started out in newspaper photography and I was, um, newspaper photography is really cool until you have a family and you need to feed them. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you mean you want to actually make money or, or at least some money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. <laughs> so, so I went into commercial photography and worked at a fantastic ad, ad agency. But during that time, um, I had, had chance to photograph and write a couple stories about some motorcycles, uh, for this website that I mentioned. And, um, and it was just, it really, it really drew me in. But anyway, I was working on a project called 21 helmets, which is a, uh, part of the one moto show in Portland, uh, for tour Drake and bell helmets was kind of interested in taking that show on the road. And I said, well, I could put together a display for you. And, um, and so we sort of kicked it around and, and, uh, uh, they said, well, th- throw some ideas. And so I said, okay, well, I think we should have like a vintage travel trailer where the sides flip up and the helmets are inside and you could take it to these motorcycle shows. And my wife said, well, I know where there's a number of, of these trailers in Mitchell, Oregon, where it's really dry. And so she came out to look at some trailers for me, these vintage travel trailers. And while she was here, she sort of had this epiphanous moment that there should be a hostel in Mitchell. And granted, this is four and a half hours from our home. You know, I mean, so she's four and a half hours away in the desert and has this epiphany uh, in church circles. We would call it a vision. And uh, and so we started to explore the idea and um, we had to make a commitment to the vision. And so we did of this whole hostile thing, we thought, well, let's give it a, let's, let's talk about it some more. And we came out to Mitchell and uh, a church here in Mitchell was closing down. And so we talked to our church leadership and said, Hey, we got this crazy idea. What if inside a church, there was a hostel and, um, and that hostel helped support the pastor instead of a very small congregation trying to support a pastor. And our church leadership said, yeah, you guys would be great at that. And both Jalea and I were like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> no, this is just, this is an idea for someone, <laughs> not for us. <laughs> we just thought it was here. Here's a great idea, you know? <laughs> and uh, so anyway, our church just uh, doubled down again. You know, they sort of called our bluff um, and they doubled down and said, "Do you know, here's the keys. Uh, tell us what you need. And my wife moved out here to Mitchell um, and started remodeling the building and turned it into spoken hostel, which is what it is now. In addition to a church, we do church every Sunday, uh, downstairs, uh, instead of upstairs in the sanctuary is the bunk room with 12 beautifully hand built rough sawn blue pine bunk beds. It's, it's, it's stunning. But my wife's vision is really what brought us here. And, uh, the guys at the ad agency thought I was crazy. They said, you'll be calling us in three months. Uh, looking for work. 
begging for your job back. Yeah. And uh, I remember I said, okay, guys, here's the deal. I've handed over the passwords, everything. I want radio silence from the ad agency for, for 90 days. And on the 90th day, they called and said, well, we got some work. And I said, you know, thanks, but no, I think I'm going to be okay. Um, and attacking this, this crazy vision with someone as visionary and as driven as my wife um, has been, I mean, it was a game changer. I thought I was headed down the right track and I was starting to do more motorcycle photography. And I thought, oh, this is it. And it turns out that that was actually the off-ramp to what the real highway was, which was coming to Mitchell and opening a hostel and being a bus driver and pastoring a church. And I like I can't thank my wife enough for having the the bravery to to come to our marriage and say, I have this crazy idea. What do you think? And saying, yeah, that's crazy, but let's do it. You know, we can do this together. And um, and we did and, and are. <laughs> so what's the measure of success here? You're making more money doing what you're doing now than working at the ad agency. Do you feel oh, better? Heavens, no. <laughs> so you've given you know, up a lot of money for yeah, this. Well, it was a, it, you know, I mean, there was, yeah, I gave up money. I gave up a real nice studio with a psych wall and a glass office and a company car and all those kind of great things. But did I really give anything up when, now, you know, now we're living a very full life and I've met people like Tom and Tom has, uh, you know, brought me along, uh, in a way that no one, you know, no one ever has. If, and, and, well, that's not really true. I guess I've been brought along in many ways, but going back to a very early when my wife and I met, I had a huge, uh, map on the wall in my, uh, in my house. Actually, she bought me the map. My wife bought me the map because I wanted to go around the country and I wanted to photograph firefighters because I was a firefighter and a newspaper photographer at the time. And that trip never happened. And so now essentially, you know, I've, I, I'm no longer a photographer. I'm no longer newspaper guy. I'm no longer all these things. And now the trip happens, (laughs) you know, (laughs) It's funny. It's like, did I, you know, did I really give up or did I gain something by trusting that my wife had an incredible vision and, and, and just getting behind that? I mean, the benefits for, for me are fantastic. And I don't want to focus just on those because, you know, my wife has put a ton of effort into this whole thing and um, she's done an extraordinary job. We, um, we serve between, 1,200 and 1,500 uh, travelers a year in this little town of 128 people. Uh, most of them are bicyclists uh, crossing the country on the Transamerica Trail. A lot of, you know, we get a lot of motorcyclists as well. And uh, I, I can't, I can't imagine a better, a better life. You know, if I may jump in here, I would like to mention that Jolay is not only a visionary, but she is just plain an awesome lady. She is. You guys both have a, a similar part of a, your story here, in a, in a way. I mean, Tom had left some technology and and a, and a, maybe a you know a very bright future probably there. Pat, you've done something similar to go towards something that is more about life 
rather than about, you know, the things that much of, of, uh, well, the Western world chases money and things. Yeah. So uh, at the ad agency, there was a, there was a point at which, uh, the, the ownership team brought on a new, uh, part, part owner and creative director. And, um, and Tyler, uh, is extraordinary creative director, like the guy, love the guy. And I, I'm still really good friends with the owners of the ad agency. We're just, we grew up in the same town. Um, but I knew that, that that moment that the agency was going to take a direction that was more technologically advanced. I was doing web development. I was helping deploy environments, you know, for the university of Oregon and, and that have interactive components, you know, and relied heavily on technology. And so I was developing a lot of that stuff which was enjoyable at the time, but then I, I just knew that it was going to grow and I was happy for the agency. Don't get me wrong. I was really happy for them. I knew that they were headed the right direction, but I just knew it wasn't for me. Mm. So the hostile vision came at a time when I was sort of getting ready to, to say technology, you've been fantastic, but you're growing faster than I want to grow with you. It's time for me to, to sort of look to new things. This trip, the Tom that you're, you're trying to convince Pat to go on back in 2020, this 8,500 kilometer <laughs> trip or, or mile trip, rather mm-hmm. 8,500 miles, about, about 14,000, just under 14,000 kilometers. I think somewhere around there. What's in it for Pat? I, I don't know. I just, I just thought he ought to get on a bike and, and get out on the road and find out what it's like. Cause you thought he would find what? I thought he would find what I have had for most of my life. The, the freedom and the experience of, of being not just passing through the world, but being in the world, being a part of it. So you weren't just trying to get someone to go for a ride with you. You were trying to pass something well, on to Tom. Part, part of both? Yeah, yeah. I, I would say the, the twofold Motive. Mm-hmm. I think you could say that Tom was kind of an evangelist at that point. <laughs> <laughs> a motorcycle evangelist. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and, and it worked, right? <laughs> you, you, are you saying because he came at you with an evangelistic tone, you mean, or approach? Well, no, just to, well, I mean, to be fair, we are both pastors, but we're not your typical evangelistic. We're not. <laughs> We're not that kind of people, right? right. <laughs> we're, we're not those kinds of Christians. We're, we're, we're not Bibles. We're not Bible thumpers. We're just just serious Christians. I guess. Yeah, we just we love <laughs> we love people. Well, anyway, so Tom comes at me with this, uh, and you know, I didn't know what to expect, and so yeah, I think he just he was like, "Well, you just got to trust me," essentially, and I and I and I did, and I'm glad that I did, um, and. It is, it is life-changing to, to really, to switch from uh, riding a motorcycle to being a motorcyclist is that's, there's a huge switch there. There's a giant switch there that I didn't, I didn't know that existed. And Tom has known it his whole life. And so for me, that was the education. And there was, I I don't know if you know this or not, Tom, but (laughs) this might be the first time you heard this. There were a few people who when they heard that this Tom was kind of cooking this whole thing up and, and wanted me to go that 
they were concerned about Tom traveling alone on a big trip. And so they started talking to me and saying, you know, uh, we'd feel better if Tom went, had somebody go with him. And <laughs> so, <laughs> an outside influence. Yeah. So now there's this other influence and, and I get it. Tom at the time was 78. You had broken something. You and Mary were in the hospital at the same time about something. Oh yeah. I had a, I uh, had a gallbladder oh, attack. Right. Well, actually, my gallbladder had already been removed, but I, I passed a gallstone directly out of the liver while my wife was in the intensive care unit trying to get over sepsis. So, <laughs> so, so you know, here at Tom, you know, at 78, 77 at the time, you know, and, and there's concerns about his health and all this kind of stuff. And, and so I'm thinking, yeah, well, like, what good am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> what good am I going to do? I could barely ride a motorcycle. <laughs> well, people, yeah. people talk to me about like, well, aren't you, aren't you concerned about Tom? And, you know, I tell people all the time, the only time I worry about Tom is on stairs, climbing and descending stairs. Other than that, once Tom throws his leg over a motorcycle, I've never followed somebody with such silky, smooth riding like he you know i mean every apex is beautiful every lean is just and and tom sits up in his in, on his bike like he sat on a horse just you know sits up nice and good posture and and just following him through corners and i mean you know when we came home this last time we just rode 10,000 miles almost 10,000 miles and i'm having a hard time keeping up with him <laughs> on on the road closest to his home because he's just so smooth on a motorcycle. And so when people say, well, I worry about Tom on a bike, I'm like, you don't need to worry about Tom on a bike. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and you're having trouble keeping up to his 250 CC bike and yeah. you're, on a, you're on a 750. Yeah. I'm on a 750. Yeah. Right. Because right. he's just so, he's just so smooth and, and especially on the roads that he knows. Yeah. And uh, to me, I see when I see Tom riding at 80 with the confidence that he has, that's a motorcyclist. You know, that's somebody who's made a, who's, whose mindset is different from someone who occasionally rides a motorcycle, if that makes sense. It's kind of different when we get out on a highway that, that has high speed traffic though, because then I've got a, the throttle pretty much pinned to the stop and dancing on the gear change, trying to keep it going. Yeah, because your top speed is like 85 miles an hour, something like that. Can't be much more. Yeah, uh, with, uh, with the 650-pound gross weight and a 65-liter a dry bag on there, it's probably more like 70 to 75. Right, right. So you're not, uh, you're not moving along very quick. And like you say, you're, you're wide open. It's all it's going to do. This, this trip, I mean, you went off with a, a K75, the, what people call the flying brick. Yep. And, and the CSC... 250. The, can you talk about, uh, Tom, your choice for the CSC? What did you have before it? Why did you go to the CSC 250 and why that bike? Well, I had a, a Triumph Bonneville America and it weighed something over 600 pounds. And it seemed like every time I got below 15 miles per hour, it got heavier and more awkward. And it was also disgustingly easy to go too fast, too quickly. And I thought, I just don't need this anymore. So I thought I'm going to get me an old man's bike and, and I'll just tootle around at my own speed. 
an, an old man's bike. <laughs> Sorry. So if I Google old man's bike, CSC is going to pay us for this. A CSC is going to pop up and you're going to see a 250 adventure bike. Oh, there you go. There's the old man bike. <laughs> So you obviously, I mean, there, there is something to that. There is something to that. When you when you follow the CSC Facebook group, there is definitely something to that. So anyway, that's side story. So, the, but what what attracted you to CSC? Uh I like the looks of the machine, and I kind of like the idea that it was, although it's only a two fifty, it's a full size machine. You can. You know, you can you can relax and and take a an upright riding position, no problem. And I read every review I could find over the three years that that specific model had been on the market, and every one of them said this is not what you would expect from a Chinese motorcycle, and the front brake will fade if you use it hard going downhill. And they, it seemed like they had all been written by the same person, practically. <laughs> and I, I thought, how often do I use the front brake hard going downhill? Never. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to try it. I just trusted the reviews. And when I first took it out on the pavement, I rode it around the dirt a little bit before I even registered the thing. But then when I first took it out on the dirt, it was like, oh, my gosh, this thing handles like my top-of-the-line triumphs did from the Meriden Works. And you've been riding this for a number of years now. Yeah, I, it's a 2018. And you bought it brand new, obviously. I did. We're going to take just a little break, but stay with us because when we get back here, we're going to get into the, the first trip and kind of work our way through. There's just so much more coming up. Stay with us. Well, this is your last chance for this year, 2022, to attend the largest overlanding event possibly in the world, most likely in the world, Overland Expo East. It's October 7 through 9, 2022, this year, at the Oak Ridges Estate in Arrington, Virginia. Now, they've got several options for you to, to go there, um, several options as far as passes go. They've got day passes, weekend passes, but they also have special motorcycle passes. They call them moto passes, which get you into some special motorcycle-only events. They also have a pass called Moto Overland Experience, which is kind of a VIP status for motorcyclists. It includes the weekend camping, but a whole bunch of motorcycle-centric things, including some tailored instruction for those who are bringing their own motorcycle. That's riding instruction, uh, which is likely through Bill Dragoo, who you've heard here on this show with uh, with Dart, Dragoo Adventure Rider Training, top-notch trainers. You need to buy your tickets online at overlandexpo.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here at Adventure Rider Radio, so they know that you heard about it um, through us. But anyway, October 7 and 9, you, you don't want to miss this. Oak Ridge's Estate, Arrington, Virginia, Overland Expo East. Now, there's another reason you should go to Overland Expo East. Sam Manicom from our Raw show, is going to be at Overland Expo East in Arrington doing presentations. It's one of the stops Sam is making on his U.S. tour over the next few weeks. He's in the U.S. now. So book your tickets. Tell them you heard it here at Adventure Rider Radio. 
meet Sam Manicom. Say hello to Sam. Say hello to for me because I'm not going to be there. And uh, and being part of it, just an incredible weekend with Overland Expo. They have done amazing things. They've got so many vendors and presentations there. It's mind-boggling. I'm not even sure. I mean, I highly doubt it's even possible to take it all in over the weekends. So you got to sort of pick and choose what's going to be great. OverlandExpo.com. Get your tickets. Moto Camp Nerd kind of says it all, doesn't it? Except that you won't find another store like this because according to Ben and Mary, founders of Moto Camp Nerd, it's the only store like it. There's not another one, period. It is a motorcycle camping store, which is really cool. Camping from motorcycles is their specialty. So if you have any gear questions, they're the people to talk to. They've got all the top brands like Nemo Equipment, Big Agnes, Sea to Summit, and they stock this stuff. It's not a drop shipping setup. It's a brick and mortar store because you can order online, but you can also walk in to the store. It's in Archdale, North Carolina. The website, campmotonerd.com. This is the place to go for motorcycle camping. That That is what they focus on. Motocampnerd.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Go light, go fast, go far with Giant Loop. Giant Loop has grown in leaps and bounds and it's just expanded again. And that's because the folks at Giant Loop have stayed true to their credo to make products that are purpose-built to enhance the riding experience for those who want a modular and customizable packing system that's durable, stable, intuitive, and lightweight. No extra straps and buckles. You're not going to find that on Giant Loop stuff. No everything in the kitchen sinks designed. You're not going to find that on Giant Loop stuff. Instead, what you get is solid, durable, modular bag systems that allow any rider to sort of build their own kit to suit their style. From tank bags to panniers for dual sport bikes onto adventure motorcycle world traveler panniers, even fuel bags is a huge lineup that you can trust for quality. Giant Loop Moto. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. GiantLoopMoto.com. So, Pat, for you, for this first trip, this, this 8,500 miles or, or almost 14,000 kilometer trip that you did a few years back, where or when along this trip did it sort of hit you about the motorcycle and the trip and the adventure? When did you do the switch into the motorcyclist? When did things start to feel different? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> it just seemed like it when I maybe... I don't know that there was a specific moment. Tom's looking at me like maybe there was. Was there a moment that that I just went, oh, this is real? I think probably along about Wells, Nevada. Yeah. Yeah, somewhere around Wells, Nevada, I think the the evolution began to take place. And I don't know that it was until I was home and I realized that I wanted to, you know, my, I mean, my butt was tired and we were out of money and you know, <laughs> even on the 8,500 mile trip. Um, but I, I just knew that something had changed and I, I, I don't know that there's any one specific moment, but, but it did seem like as time went on and I, I grew more comfortable with the routine of, you know, packing the bike and planning the next 
route and um, just getting on the road and feeling the wind and and just moving through the space and being in the space, it just suddenly it just felt it just felt right. Mm. And it probably was somewhere around Nevada. Yeah, you're right. Now that I think about it. Yeah, after we battled wind with a five degree lean for how long? Yeah, hundreds of miles. (laughs) Hundreds of miles we're just we're leaning five degrees to the left. And um and but you know and I remember we were going through Kansas and Oklahoma on this first trip. And I'm behind Tom and we're dodging these thunderstorms all day long. And, and the whole time I'm just nervous. I'm like, oh, should I put my rain gear on? Is this, you know, is this, how should I get off the road? And, I, you know, I'm really worried. And, and Tom's just riding, <laughs> you know, like it's nothing. And then at one point he, uh, he pulls over on this lonely stretch of highway. And I thought, oh, there must be a problem because, you know, we're just dodging thunderstorms. He pulls over, he puts kickstand down, he starts opening his his top his side case and top case. And he, he says, he yells at me over the wind because it's so windy. You better get your fallies on, lad. I we're about to get bathed. <laughs> <laughs> so and and this this kind of goes back to I was listening to your podcast with um oh, who is the motorcycle instructor? Uh, Chris Birch, uh, Chris, 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 yeah, Chris Birch, and you guys were talking about uh, how do you know when you don't know something? Yeah, and I loved, I loved that going with Tom gave me the confidence to not, like, uh, you know, when you see a thunderstorm, do you gear up or you just keep going? When is close enough? When is it too far? When do you just trust that it's going to be okay? And then when he pulled over. And we geared up for the thunderstorm, which I'm glad we did because we did get bathed. Oh man, we were baptized. Yeah, we got immersion. pretty good that time. <laughs> but but there was that that I thought I had kind of become a bit of a motorcyclist, but I was still uncertain about when to do what. And then having Tom there and just following him and seeing his confidence. And then when he pulled over, you know, you, you knew that was serious it was time to gear up and get ready. It was time to mentally get in that space of it's going to get ugly. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was, that was kind of a pivotal moment for me that I just went, you know what? You could dodge a lot of stuff and it's going to be okay. And even if it's not, you just gear up. And then later in the trip, we were in Wisconsin, I think it was on, on the way back. Yeah. And uh, you know, we'd ridden through some pretty crazy stuff. And, um, we pulled over and I started to gear up and Tom was already geared up and sitting on his bike. And he says, I think you might want to hurry. And there's literally a wall of water coming at us. Right. You know? (laughs) And, um, so what ended up happening at that point was I got out in front. I it's, I just, we trade off who's in the lead. I got out in front and it was suddenly, it was a strange moment where Tom is, is trusting that I'm going to be okay out in front. And we were climbing this hill uh, near uh, Fond du Lac or something like that. And it really, really came down, Jim. I mean, it came down so hard that there was so much standing water on the road. All these cars were pulling off to the side. And I thought, boy, I better pull off. And then it just dawned on me that, you know what? I'm on a motorcycle. 
if we pull off the road, people can't see we're now a target. Like we're going to, we're, we're going to get hit if we pull off the road and our wheels can cut through the water and their wheels can't. So as Tom put it, he says, you just got to ride right into the mouth of the dragon. And we did. And it was, and it was fine. I mean, we got into the next town and we were soaking wet all the way through, but it was at that time when, you know, I was behind. I saw when Tom said, Hey, this is a good time to gear up and get ready. And that prepared me for Wisconsin. And we got into that town and we just were at a stoplight and we're wringing our gloves out and just laughing to ourselves. I was laughing in all that rain because it was so absurd. <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> there's lightning right over our heads. I mean, you can hear it in your helmet. And I thought, I just did. I just did that. No one can take that away. I just did that. And if Tom, Tom hadn't led me to that point, I'd still be riding a, a 1971 <laughs> rat bike 10 miles and wondering if I'd make it back to the hostel. <laughs> so, so this trip that you guys did, this, this, this 8,500 kilometers, like I said, just less than 14,000 kilometers, that sort of opened things up for you, Pat. At, at this point, now all of a sudden you come back and you start thinking about what's next. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. And, and then uh, I, uh, I suddenly started kicking myself because I used to commute. When I worked at the ad agency, I, I was, um, uh, what, 110 kilometers from the office. And so I would commute, you know, 220 kilometers a day just to go to work and back. And I always had like sort of junky little Subarus, any car I could buy for 500 bucks because I knew I was just going to burn it up on the highway. Uh, and then the ad agency, they said, you know, Pat, instead of giving you a raise, we want to make we want to get you a car, you know. So they bought me a Subaru wagon, which was brand new. It was beautiful. I was so, to use the Christian term, blessed. Uh, and it, it later came out that they were kind of embarrassed to send me on photo shoots with my junky cars. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, the point of that was that is that. After this trip, I just thought I just wasted 10 years not commuting on a big, uh, you know, road sofa. I could have been commuting in terrible weather and probably would have had the time in my life for 10 years just riding. If you were on and a motorcycle. I, if I was on a motorcycle. And I don't regret that. I, I don't. And, and I understand, you know, my family was young. That's a big risk. I get that. Um, but when we got back... I bought a K1200 LT. We jokingly call it the light truck or the golden road sofa. And, um, which it's huge. It's got every dang thing on it. Right. I wanted to see if my wife would go on a tour with me. And because I was just so smitten with this motorcycle travel, turns out that she's, my wife, Jalei is fantastic. She's content to be on the back of a motorcycle. Doesn't mind at all, but it's just not her thing. And so, you know, we'll probably buy a convertible so that <laughs> we can go together. Um, but yeah, it changed me. It changed me. After this trip, you guys come back and I, I guess it's maybe just a couple of years later. <laughs> Once again, Tom comes up to you, Patrick, and says, hey, I've got this idea for a trip. Only this one is 10,000 miles. Well, actually, I had mentioned going to Oak Island when we got back last time. And finally... This year, I thought, you know, I, how many more opportunities am I going to have? It's, it's time to go. So I just said, okay, let's go to Oak Island this time. 
And, and Pat, <laughs> so what, what do you like? What's your response when, when he comes to you with this idea? I was, uh, we were standing here at the counter at, at the co- having coffee. And he says, Hey, I got this idea. And, and he also said, I wanted to do, he wanted to do 10,000 miles. And, you know, being a photographer and working at an ad agency, 1080 is a, is a pretty common number for video aspect and all that other kind of stuff. And so I, the number jumped into my mind. I was like, Oh, 10,000 miles for your 80th year. Tom's 1080. That's fantastic. So then, so, so, uh, I said, Oh, Tom's 1080. And immediately he lights up and my wife turns and it's like, Oh boy, <laughs> you know, here we go. And, um, and, and there were some other complications in there. Tom needed to have, he's had one shoulder replaced and he needed the other one replaced, but because of COVID, everything was slowing down dramatically. And the whole idea just seemed kind of, um, it's, it seemed crazy in the light of someone needing a shoulder replacement. Um, but I think at this point, it's pretty fair to say that you can't underestimate, uh, Tom. Like he's, if Tom's mind is set to something, it'll happen. But there was a there was a, a while there that it looked like the trip was going to be off because he couldn't get his shoulder replacement done, and you know we play so we play guitar together. Well, we play music together. I play mandolin. He plays guitar. We 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 play downtown. We do a jam session downtown. We do you know. And so I remember watching him trying to put his jacket on after playing music together, and it was like he can't he can't lift his left arm, and we can't go on a trip like that. And that shoulder has to get replaced and things were slowing down. And so for a while there, we just thought, now the trip is off. Well, take it from there, Tom, what happened? Well, one day, uh, the doctor's office called me and, and said, we can do it next week. And so I said, all right, let's, let's get her done. <laughs> we got, uh, got the shoulder replaced. And, uh, in five weeks, they, I went in for a checkup and and they asked me to do a few things with it and I did and and the guy said, Well, you're okay and I said, Well, what can I do? And he said, You can do anything you want. So I said, Okay, that's it. We're on our way. <laughs> I don't think he quite meant that as literal as you took it, but well, I get it. <laughs> no, and, and that's why that's why I say you can't underestimate Tom because it's actually true because Tom, you know, I think what doesn't come across here is I think the PT guy was completely blown away that this 80 year old guy had been doing all of his exercises religiously five times a day. And he was literally released for pretty much full service duty after five weeks, mm. an 80 year old guy. And it was, that's amazing. and it was, yeah. yeah, but that's, I mean, again, that's Tom. Well, I didn't want to have somebody else doing physical therapy on me. So when they told me I, you can do, this and that and some other thing a couple of times a day. I thought, well, I'll do them a couple of times a day. So I did. And then I just worked into doing them five times a day and and about three times as many repetitions as what they had recommended. And you recover faster for it. Oh yeah. 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 So when you guys leave on this trip, Tom, you're, you're 80 years old. Yeah. Does that feel old to you? Uh, let's put it this way. There's no question that I'm getting more decrepit, but I refuse to get old. 
<laughs> Pat, and how old are you when you when you go on this trip? Uh, I'm 52 now. So what I was 50 on the first trip, 52 <laughs> this trip. So you're um, you're young. You're a kid still. Well, that's it. Okay, so this is pretty funny because we get places, <laughs> we go places, and they say they say, um, you know, we're riding together, and and they say, oh, well, is that your dad? You know, at some point, I just went, yeah, that's my dad. Because <laughs> trying to explain the whole thing was just, you know, just whatever, too much, work, right? <laughs> too much work. So yeah, that's my dad. <laughs> My dad, uh, my dad actually lives in Hawaii. So, ten thousand miles is pretty. It's pretty ambitious. It's a big trip. You're going to do it in, in about what thirty days? I think you said something, something like over thirty days. Where did you go for yeah. ten thousand miles? Well, we we went south from this middle of Oregon, and I have uh, a couple of nieces that live in California. One in Red Bluff, and one in Lancaster, which is quite close to uh, Los Angeles, actually. We visited both them, and then we uh, went east through Arizona and, and visited a friend there and and then continued on into New Mexico and and then cut south into to Texas, where uh, in West Texas I have a brother that is 90 years old, <laughs> and I visited with him and then we went on across Texas and hit the Gulf Coast just east of uh, Houston. And we followed along the Gulf Coast where you're never much more than 100 miles from the water, or 100 yards, I mean, from the water, and not much more than two feet above sea level. And we visited Holly Beach, which is uh, known as the Cajun Riviera, where the, the houses are on stilts up to 20 feet high. <laughs> we saw things like that. And then we, we went to Homa, Louisiana, which is known as the, the heart of Cajun country. And we, uh, we were trying to find some Cajun food and Cajun music. We found some food finally that was true Cajun, and that was enjoyable. We didn't find any music. <laughs> but uh, then we continued across the Gulf Coast uh, into Florida. And then we went up through Georgia and and visited a, a friend in South Carolina and then my son in North Carolina. And then we took our break while we had our bikes being retired and and we Patrick had to come home and do some work. And, and then we flew back and continued the trip going across Southern uh, Virginia took uh, the bridge tunnel combination that goes across to Maryland. And then we went into Delaware and then we took a ferry across to New Jersey up along the, the Jersey, the garden parkway. Oh, garden parkway. I think. Yeah. And then we had to go through two boroughs of New York, uh, Brooklyn and Queens. And then we got on the, the long Island parkway, which the locals call the, the long Island parking lot. <laughs> and, <laughs> Which was very true, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that that was uh, the ugliest part of the trip. The, one of the a person in New Jersey had said, well, that's a zoo up there. He was right. <laughs> but we got through it, and we, uh, we managed to visit a house that Patrick's great-grandfather had built on Long Island when he immigrated here from Ireland. 
And I thought that was particularly fun. And then we went on up to the tip of Long Island, took a ferry across to uh, Connecticut, and went through Rhode Island, uh, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, through New Brunswick, up around the the loop and came back down the southeast coast of Nova Scotia to Oak Island, which I'd wanted to see forever. And and we managed to get a boat trip uh, that took us a tour around the, the island. You can't get on the island because of a COVID scare. And I found out that I probably wouldn't have gotten on anyway because the last time they opened it up, they offered 10,000 tickets and, and they sold out in three minutes. So we we were going to miss that anyway. But I got to see the place, and then we met some people uh, that told us how to, to navigate around the, the big towns in, in Canada, and that was – they were from Ontario and the Toronto area, and we really appreciated their help. We managed to get into Quebec for a short time, and then we went through most of uh, southern Ontario – and then we continued on across southern Canada until we got to uh, BC and we went north up to Revelstoke and then back down and through Washington State and home. Now, is this a planned route before you left? Did you know exactly where you're going or how did that work? We didn't know exactly where we were going. We knew roughly where we wanted to go. You know, we just kind of, we'll go this way and and then we we picked the the exact route day by day, pretty much. And are you camping or, or hoteling it? We we did hotels pretty much all the way, except a few uh, KOA campgrounds. We get a camping cabin. I'm I'm getting a little long in the tooth for the canvas condominium. <laughs> Why? What is it? What is unappealing about the tent now? The hard ground. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> not much fun and. And trying to crawl into a, a single-person combat shelter, which is what we have for tents, that, uh, that, that's a bother. And, and setting up and tearing down is just more bother than I'm willing to put up with anymore. Right. It sounds like just a, just an amazing trip. And it, and it sounds like quite the combination with the two of you, you know, and, and, and I really get that Tom, you're passing something on with, which I think is amazing because it's something I think about more as I get older about how we go through life and gathering all this knowledge and learning all these things. And then quite often we don't have the people to pass them on to, particularly our, our children, because often, you know, children, although when you're younger, I think people have this misconception. I certainly did that children were automatically, since they're, they're, they're one of you, they're carbon copy, they follow along your footsteps. Then as you have kids, you realize that's not true. They make a left turn and you don't <laughs> yeah. see them <laughs> at that point. That's a slight exaggeration, but you know what I'm saying? So it's great that you're able to pass this on and that you've, you've made a, a motorcyclist uh, out of Pat. I mean, I, I think that's a, well, amazing. I think there's, uh, there's another layer to this that, you know, Tom inspired me to be a motorcyclist, but the, the, I think the bigger picture is that, you know, well, you can talk about it. Just wanting well, to inspire Well, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to go on this particularly long trip, I wanted to, I wanted to have the, the trip that I can say, yeah, I did 10,000 miles when I was 80 years old. But part of the reason for that is I want to, other people to know that just the passage of the years 
doesn't prevent you doing what you want to do. Uh, if you have a dream that you have something you really want to do, get out there and do it and ignore how old you are. Just if you're physically able, get out and do it because how many more chances are you going to have to do it? Uh, just get out there and, and, and do the things you want to do. Uh, life is, is to be lived. I, I realized when I was a teenager that I'm going to die but I have no intention to stop living until I do die. Mm-hmm. And that, that was kind of the neat thing was that we met so many people along the way, you know, on the, on the ferry terminals, uh, restaurants, uh, campgrounds, you know, they see Tom take his helmet off and they're like, Oh, well he's, he's not young, <laughs> you know, and it's, they see the, the Oregon license plates and say, wow, where are you guys going or which? And so we tell the story of, well, we're on this 10,000 mile trip to Nova Scotia and you know, Tom's 80, 80 years old, you know, <laughs> and there was this one guy from Ontario. Uh, oh, what was his name? I can't remember his name now. Uh, oh. Billy, Billy from, so Billy from Ontario, if you're listening, uh, from Toronto, Toronto, if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> but Billy, we walked into this little restaurant in, uh, in, uh, uh, the ferry terminal there on Nova Scotia on the, uh, on the West side, Digby, Digby, Digby. Uh, and so we just walked in and there was these three other motorcyclists there. We struck up a conversation and the story comes out and Billy just about tips over 80 years old. Are you kidding me? And Tom's just got such a great attitude, right? He's just like, Super great attitude. And I remember we ended up getting on the same ferry and Tom comes up and um, he says to, he comes to Tom and he says, next time I have a, well, we're going to call it a crappy day, but he didn't use that word. (laughs) Next time I have a crappy day, I'm thinking of you, man, you are inspiring to me. And there was people all along the way that I think they were inspired. And Tom's, you know, he's, we talked about it a lot, you know, it's, it's not that he's trying to inspire everyone to go ride motorcycles. Just go do the thing that you maybe think you can't, or it's getting too late or just, just do the thing, whatever that is. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's amazing what you can do when you don't know you can't. And some of these things have made their way into sermons, things like that, because, you know, I mean, the basic principle of motorcycling, where you look is where you will go. And, you know, and this, and Tom getting me into this has caused me to really look at like, okay, well, what's our dreams here? What's our, and the hostel takes a lot of focus. And and my wife is, is extraordinary at this. And, and we're, you know, we're trying to do this together as a team, but you got to keep your eye on the dream. You got to look through the corner and, inspiring people, you know, having Tom inspire people. It's just, it's so great to have them kind of like look through it a little bit and, and hopefully go home and say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go do that thing. I'm going to live. It makes it a little easier, doesn't it? To see someone like Tom and Mm -hmm. it just sort of gives you hope. It gives you, gives you something to aim for because it's easy to get caught up in life and, and forget about where you are and and I guess what you should be heading for. So, Tom, you are inspirational. I mean, I love the 10,000 miles at 80. I think that's very cool. And it's also cool that you need those two things to align first. First, I've got to get to 80 before I can do those 10,000 miles because it won't mean the same thing now. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're playing music the other night downtown here. 
and uh, we're, we're wrapping up, we're packing our instruments and, and he steps off the curb and says, well, what do you think about 15,000 miles? <laughs> <laughs> so Jalay, J- my wife, if you just heard that, we will, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know now at 80 years old, you're 80 years old now, what do you know now that the rest of us should know before we get to 80? I, I think it's just, uh, more that you can do more than you think you can. If there's something that uh, you think about doing and think it might be a good thing to do, just make some plans. Not You don't have to be elaborate in your plans because sometimes you have to fly by the seat of your pants. But just go ahead uh Make a plan, say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and this is when I'm going to do it, and then just get out there and do it. You can do it. Uh, You can do a lot more than you think. Tom, Pat, thank you very much for sharing your story. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you very much. Oh, glad to do it. Thanks for having us. Tom Fitzgerald and Patrick Farrell from um, in Mitchell, Oregon. Now we've got some great photos from Tom. Tom is a great photographer. You've got to see these pictures all in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. If you listen to our rider skills episodes, you've already heard about the importance of your foot pegs. In fact, any school you go to that teaches adventure motorcycle riding, they're going to talk about the importance of foot pegs and what they do for control, weighting the foot pegs. This is an easy decision to make. To get the most out of your motorcycle, you spent the money on your motorcycle. Now to get the most out of it and out of you as a rider, you need to replace those stock pegs with something that's made specifically for adventure riding. IMS Products has a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs. They have been designed from the ground up for adventure riding. So no matter how rough you ride, no matter how easy you ride, they've got a design that will improve the way you ride. You have the bike, now get the proper pegs. IMSproducts.com is the website. They started way back in 1976. All their foot pegs, all the ones I'm talking about here, are made of cast certified stainless steel. They use a certified heat treating process. They're made in the USA and they come with a lifetime warranty. The only reason a company is going to give a lifetime warranty is if they're confident they don't have to do anything for it, right? I mean, why would you otherwise? That's how confident they are in the product. I have them on my bike. They're absolutely amazing. IMSproducts.com is a website. Anytime you deal with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Now, don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw. It comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately for that. And like Adventure Rider Radio, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or wherever it is you find your podcast. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thank you very much for being a part of this. I'll talk to you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 